You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Peak Church, located in Apex, North Carolina. Our church is striving to welcome all who are feeling disconnected from God. And so our hope is that over the next several minutes, you will connect with the God that we are talking about, and you'll resonate deeply with the life that this God wants for you. We hope you enjoy. The scripture passage for today is from the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verses 1 through 7. The Lord said to Moses, cut two stones like the first ones. I'll write on those tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke into pieces. Get ready in the morning and come up to Mount Sinai. Stand there on the top of the mountain in front of me. No one else can come up with you. Don't allow anyone even to be seen anywhere on the mountain. Don't even let sheep and cattle graze in front of the mountain. So Moses cut two stone tablets like the first ones. He got up early in the morning and climbed up Mount Sinai, just as the Lord had commanded him. He carried the two stone tablets in his hands. The Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name, the Lord. The Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. A God who is compassionate and merciful, very patient, full of great loyalty and faithfulness showing great loyalty to a thousand generations, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion, yet by no means clearing the guilty, punishing for their parents' sins, their children and their grandchildren, as well as the third and fourth generation. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Shortly after I became a Christian, I took a job as a camp counselor. For those of you who have not done this work before, this is the perfect job if uh, you meet the following criteria. Number one, you love to try to fall asleep when it's 98 degrees outside and 90% humidity. And or if you love hanging out with middle schoolers after they haven't bathed for five straight days. Somewhere in the midst of that, we found the Lord. Um, And often, where we did so, uh, was in evening gatherings. So every evening, the way camp ministry works, is we would get the kids together in a room kind of like this, and we would do some sort of skits, a bunch of games, and then we would do some worship music and a message. And I'll never forget one particular evening that summer. 
where we invited a guest speaker. And let this just be a word of wisdom to you. Uh, if ever you invite a guest speaker at a work function or anything like that, vet them rigorously. We did not do so. And so this guy jumped up there on stage and presumed to really just like do exactly what you would anticipate a Christian high school camp to be full of. So he's just beating up on all these middle schoolers and high schoolers on the topics of cussing and listening to explicit music and watching rated R movies and you shouldn't drink and do drugs. And all, like, he's kind of hitting all the major ones, right? Which, by the way, I'm not getting into today. But if you're interested, uh, this time, last, actually a little bit earlier, last May, we did a sermon series here at the Peak whereby we revisited and re-explored all of the traditional Christian rules on like sex and purity and you know, movies and music, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and so if that's interesting to you, if you're like, oh, that actually would be an interesting sort of thing, kind of revisit all of that kind of stuff. Uh, we did a sermon series called Thou Shalt Not, which you can find, uh, if you go to the bulletin, you can find underneath the sermon notes, I put the link in there. But back to the message. He's going on and on and on. I think it can't get any worse or any more awkward until he says this at the very end. He concludes his message by talking to all these middle schoolers and high schoolers by saying, and you better get your stuff together. You better get your act together. You better start acting like good Christians. Otherwise, the guilt of your sins will bleed down and be transferred to your children. It will be put upon their children and their children's children and their children's children. They will bear the consequences of your disobedience and rebellion. And I very quietly just walked back to the AV booth and said, cut the sound, cut the mic right now. For weeks after this, I remember I was just stuck, stuck with what I'd heard him say. I was a new Christian, mind you, and so I'm still trying to sort of formulate my understanding of God and spirituality and religion and all of that. And I was having a really hard time because I was sitting with this question of, like, does, is that true? Like, does God do that? Like, that makes no sense to me, that uh, I'm on the receiving end of, like, my parents' or my grandparents' mistakes, and or it ain't fair that, like, I'm making mistakes now that my children and my grandchildren will face. Like, that makes no, like, is that, is that actually the way God operates. And as much as I wanted to refuse and sort of repudiate sort of any sort of version or understanding of God in that way, there is a biblical case that people could make for this kind of understanding of God. Passages like these you'll see found in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 28, Proverbs chapter 3, this idea that we worship a God that blesses the faithful, blesses those who are good, but curses the sinful curses those who do wrong. And so today, what I would like to do is I would like to engage this conversation. This conversation around, is this actually who God is? Is this the way in which God operates in the world? Does God bless some and curse others? And if so, how in the world do we reconcile that with who we understand Jesus to be? And if it's not, how do we reconcile passages like this? And friends, I think this actually plays a really, really big role. Whether you use the curse language or not, this is going to have a lot of wide-ranging implications as to how we understand our relationship with God, especially in the aftermath of our mistakes. Amen? So, 
Let's dive in. If you have your Bibles with you and you want to track along as we're diving into our passage for today, go ahead and do so. Go ahead and apply your smart device or your Bible. We're going to uh, be camped out today in Exodus chapter 34. Exodus, uh, to give you a little, to set the scene a little bit, uh, this book is detailing the events after God has sort of uh, called Moses to lead the people of Israel out of slavery, out of captivity, into freedom, into the promised land. But where, where we are in Exodus chapter 34 is they've not quite yet reached the promised land. They're sort of still meandering through the desert a little bit. And so what God is doing at different points of their journey is God is using this as an opportunity to hit the refresh button. They've been living in Egypt for a really long time. God's people had been living in this foreign place that preached really foreign ideas of who God is and how God operates in the world for a really long time. And so at several points in this Exodus journey, God is sort of pulling his people together and saying, hey, so that's not what I'm like. This is what I'm like. That's not what I'm like. This is what I'm like. And so we find one of those instances right here in chapter 34. God pulling the people together in verses 6 and 7 says this, I'm the Lord. The Lord is a God who is compassionate, merciful, very patient, full of great loyalty and faithfulness, showing great loyalty to a thousand generations, forgiving every kind of sin and rebellion. That sounds good, doesn't it? I'm not, if you're having like sort of like a huddle up and a restart with your relationship with God, you're like, this is awesome. Sign me up or re-sign me up. This is great. But then it keeps going. Yet by no means clearing the guilty, punishing their parents' sins to their children, their grandchildren, as well as the third and fourth generation. I don't know how that sits with you, but as one who has been more often guilty than innocent, that don't sit too well with me. As someone who has failed God way more then made God proud, done what God had asked of me. That ain't good news for people like me. And so here at our church, one of the things that we do whenever we're confronted with passages like these, sort of interesting sort of depictions of God and how God relates with us, one of the things that we believe here at this church is we believe in the great commandment. The great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your, those of you who went to VBS growing up, all of your heart, soul, mind and strength. What that means is anytime and every time we're approaching God and we're wrestling with God, we need to bring our whole being to that experience. Not just our hearts, not just what other people told us about God, but to bring our mind, what we've learned, what we know, to bring all these things to the table. And so for us here at our church, we belong to the Wesleyan tradition, the Methodist tradition. And we've got a tool that we use for how we deploy God that helps us fulfill the great commandment, and it's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. And what this tool is, is it's a, a, a reminder that any time and every time we're asking God questions about, like, is this who you are? Is this how you react with us? Is this how you treat us? Uh, we've got four things to consider, four voices to consider. So first, let's look at the bottom, the voice of Scripture. So one of the things that I would encourage you to do whenever you are out in the wild trying to find your way with God uh, and you are presented with a passage of Scripture that maybe feels like inconsistent with Jesus or maybe it's a, it feels like a discrepancy almost between the God of the old and the new or whatever, to ask the question, what does Scripture say? And not only what does this particular Scripture say, what does the sort of entire library of Scripture seem to say? Let's keep going counterclockwise. Tradition. 
you ain't the first people to follow this Jesus and discover this Jesus. The church has been doing this for thousands of years, and so we would do well to not only pay attention to get wisdom and insight from the Christians who have gone before us, Christian tradition. Experience, our personal experience matters. Your and my personal experience matters because it might not change what the Scripture says, but it might, in fact, change what it means. I say this all the time. Like, when you hear passages of Scripture say, God spoke to this person. Some people come to church, and they're like, you know, God don't speak to me that way. God don't sort of, like, get on a megaphone and go, Kyle. God, God, God doesn't talk to me that way. It's sort of like in this, it's like in my spirit sort of situation. That's how I experience God speaking to me. Maybe, just maybe, that's how God was speaking to them, right? Our experience helps us understand what it means. And then fourthly and finally, reason. We are a church uh, that does not fight against science. We believe in science. We believe that the people who are in these leading experts in their fields have something to say to the conversation. They have something to contribute to the conversation. They may not be, uh, want to talk about, you know, who created the world. Some do, uh, but they're going to talk about how. And actually, when we can learn to dance together with those experts, we're actually all running for the same thing, which is capital T, truth. And so take this tool, if you take this tool, and you apply it to our scripture passage for today, which if read very simplistically, read very literally, you just sort of take it at face value, seems to suggest that you have a God, that you are here to worship a God here today that will bless you so long as you do what is right, so long as you do what is good. But if you dare to make a mistake sometime this week, be prepared for that mistake, the consequences of that mistake to be felt on your children, children's children, children's children, children's children. So... If you apply this tool, some interesting things sort of rise to the surface. So let's just kind of, again, let's start at Scripture and let's go counterclockwise. What's important to point out about uh, the Bible is that if you actually read and survey the entire library of Scripture, you're going to find way more instances in the Bible where God is breaking bad cycles, breaking deadly and selfish and sinful cycles, rather than starting them. If you go and read about who Jesus was, this was a huge part of Jesus' mission. He's breaking cycles of poverty by feeding the hungry. He's breaking the cycles of sort of marginalization and oppression by saying, no, 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 that person is favored in the kingdom of God, this person you've been treating like trash. Jesus constantly is breaking with all of the sort of deadly and destructive cycles that we have been living in so as to give us something new. What does tradition say? Well, if you go back and survey uh, the, ch- the course of church history, you will be hard-pressed to find many, I'm not going to say there's any, but there's not many churches out there that preach about curses, that if you do something wrong, this is actually, back to our sermon series, one of the things that hope to God separates us from Disney movies, that we don't have a God who's over there just like zapping us with curses every time we do something wrong, right? Instead, the particular word that the church has always used to describe how God responds to our mistakes is not curses, but discipline, right? How does God respond to our mistakes? God disciplines God's children. Raise your hand if you're a parent in this room, right? When your child makes a mistake, you correct them. You don't just let it fly. You correct them. You show them a different way. Why? Because you love that child. You want them to find something new, something better than what they just chose, right? We went to the zoo yesterday, and I have two children, one who walks up, follows the rules completely, and the other who is trying really hard to jump over the rail that was keeping them from the bear. I have to discipline that child to show him a different way. And so what's interesting about these two concepts is they actually come from a very different place, that if you're trying to discipline somebody, 
Discipline comes from a place of love. You can put it up there for me, Ken. Discipline comes from a place of love. So when you're disciplining somebody, you're doing it because ultimately you want what's best for them. You want what protects them, what shows them the way to life. If you curse somebody, there ain't no love in that. In fact, there ain't even no relationship in that. The only thing you want is to get what? Even. Even. So this is an interesting, it doesn't really hold up against, you know, what the church has always taught. Let's keep moving. Let's move to experience. Uh, what's interesting is I would encourage you to actually go and do your own homework on this passage. Okay, go and do your own study on this passage. And what you'll find is if you actually keep reading in Exodus chapter 34, the, the scene ends with this really interesting moment where God says that, and you want to know what Moses does? Moses, in the following verses, begs God to show mercy. I don't know how you feel about that, but that feels weird to me. That a feeble, very limited, mortal human being in this moment has more patience, has more grace, has more perspective than the God of the universe. That in this moment, Moses is the one that's like, yo, 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 like holding God back between like a battle between these two parties. If ever you find a passage of scripture that seems to convey that God is less merciful or compassionate, forgiving than any one of us, that's always just a really big red flag that our understanding of God is actually a God made in our image rather than the other way around. You now have definitions and categories of God that look like us. That's how we would react as opposed to how the God of the universe would react. And then fourthly and finally, go back to the quadrilateral. The fourth and final source that ever we consider whenever we're really trying to get at the heart of truth, who is God and how does God act in the world? We ask, what does reason teach us? What do the experts in these fields teach us? And what they will tell you is there is no such thing as generational curses. There is no such thing. That is not the way the universe works. Uh, that if you make a mistake, it's like, boop, boop, like now it's like an equation, and this person gets some share of that consequence, even though they weren't even there. No, but what they do share, especially in the, the realm of psychology and mental health, they'll say that while there's no such thing as generational curses, there is such a thing as what's called generational trauma. Generational trauma is what experts uh, describe as the transference of one's trauma. So I experienced something really painful. I experienced something wrong. I experienced something really unfair. And consciously or subconsciously, I transfer that to my children, or if you don't have children, anyone and everyone that I influence, that I mentor, that I have impact on their life. So now that we've got everything on the table, when you come back to Exodus chapter 34, it reads a little different, doesn't it? It no longer reads, well, I guess you could. You could continue to read it in this very overly simplistic, overly literal sense, like, nope, this is who God is. It's the way God acts. God is uh, reactionary sometimes and violent sometimes, and you just got to deal with it. You can read it that way, or you can put all this on the table, and you can begin to realize two things. Number one, number one, that when you encounter passages like this that seem to convey God in this sort of reactionary, impulsive, vengeful, vengeful sort of space, number one, it can prove the point that most likely this is a holdover 
This is a holdover of what was still permeating Moses and Israel in regards to their perception of God. Remember, they'd been living in Egypt for a number of years. They'd been exposed to all kinds of different really weird sort of depictions of who God is. It's a polytheistic community. So it not only was a one God, there's several gods in Egypt. And so every time you interact with someone and they talked about God, they were talking about how they understood God. And this person had a different God altogether. And so over and over and over again, they were taught that whenever you're discussed, when you're engaging with God, they were taught over and over again to put human categories, human and man-made definitions and characteristics and attributes upon God. That yes, of course, God is vengeful, violent, and impulsive, because we are, right? And so when you read passages like this, it makes space for, oh, maybe this is just a holdover. This is, this is partly the reason why God was bringing them together for all these relationship refresh conversations because they have these very twisted, contorted understandings of who God is and how God interacts with us. And secondly, I think the emphasis was actually supposed to be on the first half of that passage, that actually what sets God apart from the depictions of God, the illustrations of God, the understanding of God that they had had up until this point. What sets God apart is that God is actually not like any other gods you've been used to. The God of the Bible is not like everything you've ever been told about the supernatural. That the God of Scripture, the God of Israel is one who shows you faithfulness when you rebel. This God shows you mercy when you disobey. This is a God who chases after you. It doesn't matter if you're even looking in his direction. Loves you so much that he's doing everything in this God's power to stay with you and show you the way that leads to life. The question is, how will you respond to that? So it reminds me that, yes, there are these, um, these things that maybe my ancestors have done that because the cycles were not broken, were carried on, they, they've carried into my existence. And if I'm not careful, there are things in my life that if I'm not aware of the episodes and the instances of my sinful patterns and addictions and behaviors, if I'm not mindful of those, I'm not thinking about those, that those things will be passed on if I don't receive and I don't seek God's help in breaking them. It goes back to something one of my former therapists used to say to me, which is this, that what happened to you, Kyle, is not your fault. But it is your opportunity to make it stop. This is the story of the God of the Bible. This is who God is when it comes to our mistakes, our deadly cycles, and those that have been passed on to us, empathizing with us, and also working like hell to break them, to make them stop. Back to our sermon series for the summer. This uh, is displayed beautifully and so, so uh, accurately in and through the movie Encanto. Encanto. In the movie Encanto, if you haven't seen this movie before, um, this is, uh, it's, 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 the story takes place in Colombia. It follows the story of this beautiful yet miraculous family, the Madrigal family. And you can see all of them here 
and all of them possess, the thing to know about this family, what makes them special, sets them apart, is almost every single person on this screen has some sort of special gift, has some sort of special superpower, okay? So it could be superhuman strength, or it could be superhuman ability to hear, or it's controlling the weather, or shape-shifting, or talking to animals, you name it. Every one of these people have a special power or ability, except Medi Bell, the protagonist of this movie. Well, maybe that's not accurate to say. Everyone in the family is given a gift. Mary Bell's given a gift that not other people can see right off the bat. Not everybody can appreciate right off the bat. She's been given the superpower, superhuman ability of empathy. She can feel what other people are feeling. She can sense the stress and the brokenness inside of them, sometimes before they can even sense it themselves. And so part of what she's doing throughout the course of the movie, she's going to her abuela, the matriarch of the family, and saying, yo, I know it seems like everybody's fine. I know it seems like everybody's okay. But the pressure you're putting on all of us to perform and to use our superpowers and use them perfectly in all spaces so the community doesn't lose faith in us, the family doesn't lose faith in us, it ain't working. And people are beginning to crumble. They're beginning to crumble underneath the pressure. And then guess what happens at the end of the movie? They all do. And the house does too. One of the closing scenes, the house, it's the source of their power, the source of their strength, the source of their superhuman gifting, falls to the ground. In that moment, Abuela has two choices. She can say, well, that's not my fault. I didn't do none of that. I'm not responsible for none of that. I don't own any of the responsibility. I'm out. Or she can get honest about her complicity real fast. And she does. In some of the concluding scenes of the movie, it's so powerful. She finally sits down with Mary Bell and she shares that one of the reasons why she's so hard, she's so, she's so rigid, she's demanding of perfection, is because if you go and retrace her story all the way to the beginning, where it started was the moment when her husband was brutally killed right at the moment when they just had their three children. Can you imagine that? Some of you know that. You know people who've had that experience, raising kids all by themselves. So Abuela, in this moment, loses her support system. She loses her best friend. She loses all sense of control. And so what does she do for the rest of her life? Controls everybody and everything to get that back. Again, what happened to her was not her fault. But if she doesn't take the opportunity, doesn't take the responsibility to make it stop, it's going to continue for generations and generations and generations. This is the way deadly and destructive cycles work. God's not over there cursing people. God's not over cursing your children for your mistakes. But we, I end up cursing my own children. I end up cursing the people who follow me in some way, shape, or form if I don't stop and say, this ends now. It's not my fault. But it is my responsibility to put an end to it right now. 
That's the way deadly cycles work. They continue until one person says, that's it. It ends here. It dies with me. In many ways, this is the story of the gospel. What you're witnessing in Jesus' death and his resurrection is Jesus going to the cross and saying, all this sin, all this death, all this disease, all this darkness, it ends with me. And then he invites people who want to do the same thing. He invites you to chase the same story, the same future. So friends, as I close today, the question that I want you to, to leave here with today, I want you to wrestle with today, is where, not if, where might some of those cycles be living in you? Where are some of those destructive cycles? Maybe they're not your fault. And you need to hear that. Maybe you need to hear someone finally say to you, it ain't your fault that you continue still, years after the fact, to be wrestling and struggling with this. But maybe, just maybe, it's your responsibility. It's your opportunity to break it. And so what, what might that be? And there's the, <laughs> the, the options could be limitless, right? It could just be good old selfishness, addiction, abuse, anger issues, violence, manipulation. It could be any one of the isms. Maybe there's been racism that has permeated your family for a long time, and this is a wonderful opportunity to join the spirit in breaking that. Maybe it's just plain old insecurity, bad communication, lack of empathy, neglect, no boundaries, codependency, perfectionism. I don't know. I don't know. Again, the options are limitless, right? And some of you are doing the work. And from my seat, you get all the adulation, all the respect in the world for that. Keep going, keep going, keep going. But some of you, maybe you've been living in denial about it. Maybe you just don't want to face the possibility. Maybe you've spent your entire life defining your existence that I ain't him. I ain't her. I'm not like that. I hear that. I hear that. But maybe you've been spending so much time avoiding that. Maybe you've been spending so much time sort of just presuming it didn't, it didn't infect you or your family circle or you as an individual in any shape, form, or fashion. And I'm just going to say to you, friends, that you owe it. You owe it not just to yourself, but you owe it to anyone that you might have the ability to influence to get free. If you don't believe you owe it to yourself, you owe it to us. You owe it to humanity. Now, some of you are like, well, Kyle, <laughs> listen, okay, chill out a little bit. Like, I'd, I'm an accountant, okay? So, like, I'm not on a stage all the time. I don't have, like, this massive impact or this massive influence. I don't have this massive following of people who, if I don't get well, I'm going to sort of send them on a crash course with their own life. And if that is ever your belief, if ever you walk into places like this and you just, like, you're like, I don't, I don't have a lot of influence. I'm not a leader. I don't have a lot of impact. I would just say I strongly, strongly beg to differ. A recent study came out that found this. Psychology Today found that even the most introverted person, even the most introverted person, by the time they reach the end of their life, will have impacted somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 people. Now, some small, some medium impact, some large. 10,000 people. 
And so what that means is if you take that number and you'd extrapolate it, so let's just talk about this worship service, just this worship service, the people in this building and all those children's ministry classrooms and those of you tuning in at home. If I just took all of you and said, hey, this applies to you, we're talking one to two million people will be impacted by your life, whether you like it or not. If you take our whole church as an example, now we're in the neighborhood of close to 10 million people who are impacted by your life in some shape, form, or fashion. Friends, the question ain't if. It's how will you impact the world? How will you take the cards that you've been given? And again, some of you just need to hear the words, and I'm so sorry for some of the cards that you were dealt. I am really, really sorry. As one who hates some of my own cards that I was dealt, I know that feeling. I know that. But whether or not it stops, it's up to you. So I'll leave you with this quote from the great Mother Teresa, who said, and this, friends, this is why she said this. This is why she said, we have this hang in our living room. She said these words. She said, if you want to change the world, go home and love your own family. Now, this gets twisted. Some people think this means, oh, great, so I don't have to love all, like, the people out there. Like, I can just love my own family because it's really people-y out there, and I don't really get it down with that sort of thing. No, no, no. That's not what she meant. What she meant was, if you want to change the world, go home and fight like hell to find freedom in your own family. Because if you get free, and 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 you get free, if we all do our own parts to get free, we all are liberated by the powers of sin, death, and darkness. If you leave here today and you're like, oh, I want it to start with me, just know. First, it's going to have to die with you. Thank you for listening to The Peak Podcast. Make sure you subscribe wherever podcasts can be found. For more information on how to get connected with our church, please visit us at thepeakchurch.org.